This morning's sermon comes from Exodus 19, 10 through 25. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits on the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So I remember being uh, in middle school, high school age, and uh, the bottled water craze was starting to take off. Now, I grew up uh, in a very rural area, and there was plenty of people that said, bottled water will never take off. I have a sink. I have a well. But now we're in 2019 and there's bottled water everywhere. Um, Everybody can have their own uh, various preference of water and really I think most of it tastes the same. But without that being said, what differentiates all these various water products? What's their differentiation strategy? It's purity. It's purity. They want to show how pure their water is that has a better flavor than other water. Well, what do you think would happen if we could drink 100% pure water? What if if a bottled water company was like, I'm going to make water 100% pure? Well, the Journal of Internal Medicine shows us that if we were to drink 100% pure water, that that water would actually kill us. You see, what happens is that when water is in this ultra pure state, it doesn't like to be that pure. So what it does is it attracts things around it to make it so it's like a sponge. So if you were to drink this ultra pure water, What it would do is it would strip your body of all your electrolytes and minerals and slowly you would die. The journal said that this would be the water that drinks you right back. It's purity that kills. It's purity that kills. The same is true 
with God in our text this morning. We see in our text that God is so pure, God is so holy, God is so sinless that sinners cannot dwell next to this purity without being consumed. So if you think about this, it's very reasonable to ask the question, how in the world can a holy God, this pure and sinless God, how is this God capable of being in a loving relationship with sinners? How in the world can that be? Well, if you have your order of worship, you'll see your sermon outline there. We're gonna answer this in two ways. First, you'll see that God must establish a grace-based relationship, and God must also grant us a grace-based identity. So if you have the outline before you, you'll see the text. If you look in verses 10 through 15, in this first section, we see God establishing a grace-based relationship that he'll build between himself and Israel. In this section, we see God talking with Moses and establishing with Moses the measures that must take place for sinners to be in proximity to God. Now, here's the kicker. This is not done to protect God from sinners. This is not to protect God from sinners. This is to protect sinners from God. And you need to get that. Now, if you look back in verse nine, right before our text, we see this relationship moving because God moves towards us. We see in verse nine, God coming down in a cloud, the text says, because God's radiance and his beauty is too much for our fallen eyes. It's kind of like being in a deep sleep and your roommate snatching the curtains open and the sun beating you in the face and you let out that rah, that growl. That's similar to what God's radiance is doing this morning. Here God in his grace is coming down to sinners to allow us to know him. Because God comes down, he's teaching us that we can't work our way up to him. God must come down and by his grace, he's moved to come towards us because of his own covenant love for his people. It's where we get the phrase amazing grace from. So as God comes down, how do you think the people should respond? Look in verse 10. In verse 10, the text tells us that the people must consecrate themselves. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to consecrate themselves? This means that they must set themselves apart. Consecrate means to set apart. So God instructs that part of this is that they're to make their clothes clean. Clothes? Why in the world clothes of all things? Well, these ceremonial washings in the Old Testament represented an internal devotion to God. Israel was to wash their clothes to remind themselves of their impurity due to their sin, and it also reminds them of God's holiness. And these washings, they continually reminded God's people that they needed to be clean. So not only do they have to purify themselves, but look in verse 12. Uh, limits and boundaries 
must be established because if sin bumps up against this holy place where God is, the result is death. That's that purity that kills. What's interesting about this whole process of preparing themselves physically and spiritually and emotionally, this process took two entire days, two full days of preparing themselves to stand at the foot of the mountain. You might ask, well, why? Why why do the people have to take so long to meet God? Well, God's teaching Israel that this relationship between God and man must be based off an honest recognition of our sin and a recognition and realization of God's holiness and purity and mercy. So on one hand, the more you know about yourself, the more you know about God. I am more sinful than I could ever imagine, and God is greater than I can imagine, and vice versa. The more you reflect on God's holiness, the more it reminds you of your sin. So when this is a regular part of your life, when this is a regular part of your prayer and your devotion, what this does is it illuminates God's grace more and more. Sadly, though, our sin distorts our ability to properly examine ourselves to God. And guess what we do instead? We examine ourselves and self-justify our actions by examining ourselves to other sinners. When we do this, life gets messy and ugly real quick. There was a book written called Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. And this book shows how self-justification can destroy relationships. Listen to what it says. It says the vast majority of relationships that drift apart do so slowly over time in the snowballing pattern of blame and self-justification. One person focuses on what the other one is doing wrong while self-justifying his or or her own preferences, attitudes, and ways of doing things. Here's the big point. They conclude and say, from our standpoint, therefore misunderstandings, conflicts, personality difference, and even angry quarrels are not the assassins of love. Self-justification is. So how does that work its way out today? How do we see this self-justification working itself out in our lives? We see this primarily when we start to notice other people's sins more than our own. And we put on our hat and our badge and we turn into the holiness police ready to get everybody. This is that holiness police. This is that critical spirit where you just notice everyone else's faults and everyone and everything just always fails to live up to your expectations. And instead of moving towards people with grace, you just quick to blurt out what's wrong and how dissatisfied you are. We see it all the time. You go to the kitchen you pop open that dishwasher, 
Oh my goodness. How many times have I showed him where to put the bowls in the dishwasher? I guess you just can't teach stupid. Right? Driving through your neighborhood. See, the grass is just always high in Tom's yard, and you're driving by and be like, I wish Tom knew how to cut his grass a little bit better. The whole neighborhood would look nicer. Tom's so lazy. I know he just had a heart transplant. It's been three weeks. Figure it out, Tom. Or you might have that person in your life that's always forgetful, or always forgetful. You told me you were going to pick up the dessert tonight for dinner. Now we've got people coming over. I don't have dessert. Your butt must be very flat from sitting on that throne of lies all the time with you. How do we correct this sinful imbalance? How do we correct this imbalance? We need to do what God's encouraging Israel to do in our text. We need to first look at ourselves and our hearts and our attitudes and our own individual sin, and we need to compare that to God's holiness. And when this is our regular practice, when this is our regular practice, here's what happens. Our critical eye turns into a compassionate eye. And the result of that is stronger relationships. And that grows and grows into stronger communities and stronger community groups and churches. It works its way out in our lives. And all of that being grounded in God's grace. All right, so we've seen how God's established this grace-based identity. Now let's look at our last point and see how God establishes our grace-based identity. And we see that in verses 16 through 20. And in this section, what God is doing is he's descending to the top of Mount Sinai, and we see the effect that this has on all of creation. All right, in verse 16 and verse 18, we see humanity's and creation's response to God. In verse 16, the people experience God's presence and they tremble. The mountains in verse 18 experience God's presence and they tremble greatly. You would think that if the mountains began to crumble at God's coming, that the people would too. But notice in verse 17, what are the people doing? In verse 17, God allows the people to stand. But are they standing there on their own merits? Not at all. Did they earn this privilege somehow? They haven't. They're able to stand because Moses was Israel's representative before God. In verse 20, God allows Moses to go up in the place of the people and to commune with God on their behalf. Moses is appointed by God and is the only one who's allowed to cross the boundary that the sinful people would not dare cross. So what's God doing here? What God's doing is establishing Israel's identity 
as a people who are dependent upon God and dependent upon a mediator to bridge the gap and bridge that divide that exists between a holy God and a sinful people. All right, now think about that scene. Think about what's happening here. The loud, roaring thunder, shaking everything and everyone. God is descending on a cloud. There's thunder and lightning. It is a massive scene where the people would be, quite frankly, scared and in awe. And as they're looking up, they wouldn't dare climb or try to touch that mountain, nor would they see God's presence there and be like, that's a God I want to toy with. They would have been trembling before God's holiness. And you would think that this scene would produce enough awe, awesomeness for them to be obedient, right? Surely they'll see God and they'll be really good. <clears throat> Wrong. What happens? Sadly, while Moses was talking to God on behalf of Israel, they start to lose their patience. Moses and God are taking too long. Take off your earrings. Give me a ring. Let's make this little cow so that we can worship it in the meantime. God, that God's taking too long. He may have forgotten about us sitting back and reading this, it just drives that response of how dense can Israel actually be? How dense can this people, how far can they take it? So thick-headed. They've said that about me before. Think about it though. God has saved Israel from slavery he has provided them food, clothing, water, and protection from their enemies. God's been with them day and night, sustaining them and caring for them. And they were just a nomadic slave people. And now they're staring at God in this cloud. And they still can't have just an ounce of obedience and patience and wait on God, the one who gives these perfect laws and who's staring them in the face. Y'all were exactly the same. We're exactly the same. Listen to this, Robert Anderson, he's a researcher and an expert on the theory of persuasion, and they did an experiment at the Petrified Forest National Park in Arizona. It's a mouthful, all right? So the park was having a problem. All these petrified trees were falling apart and people were taking bits and pieces of these trees over time to take them home with them. So to remedy the problem, they created this sign to kind of get at the moral outrage of the people. Listen to this sign. You can just imagine it in all caps with a bunch of exclamation marks. It says, your heritage is being vandalized every day by theft, Losses of petrified wood of 14 tons of beer are being stolen, mostly a small piece at a time. So what they did to see if the sign produced any results was they took a bunch of this petrified wood and went out on a bunch of trails and scattered the wood all over the trails. Some trails had a sign reading this. The other trails didn't have a sign at all. What do you think happened as a result of this experiment. 
the trails with this caps lock exclamation mark sign, it had three times more theft than the trails that didn't have the sign. You ask, how could that be? Here's what Anderson concluded. He said, the park's warning sign designed to send a moral message sent a different message. The people were interpreting it as, wow, the petrified wood is going so fast. I better get mine now, that fear of missing out. Another response was, oh, 14 tons a year? Surely it won't matter if I take just a little piece. You see that? This is precisely how we respond to God's law. On the one hand, we sit back and think that we obey God's laws really well. That's legalism. And you sit back as a holiness police and you're like, how dare they steal that wood? I would never steal anything. Regularly forgetting that all of us are glory thieves. We steal all the time. How often do things go well in our lives and we take credit for it? All the time. We're all guilty of stealing. On the other side, you are like the folks who are stealing all that petrified wood. It says, well, everybody else is doing it. It's culturally normal. I guess I'll just click on that website. Everybody else is bashing uh, the black sheep of the family at the dinner table. Guess I'll throw my hat in the ring. Everybody else is doing it. Why can't I? I'll never be holy anyway. What's one little sin gonna do? However, what we're learning here in this section at Sinai is that we'll never be able to ascend the holiness of God by our own best efforts. Because through legalism, through your own effort, what happens if Israel touches the mountain? Death. On the other hand, we also learn what happens to sinners when they break God's law through licentiousness, through license to sin. It's death. So for the do-gooders and the ones that don't want to obey rules, the sentence is death. So they needed a temporary remedy. So what happens, because of all these sins, Israel for thousands of years had to perform all these ceremonial washings, all these rituals, and they had to sacrifice animals over and over and over for their sins to be atoned for. And could you imagine doing this your whole life, knowing as soon as you sacrifice another one of those animals and do another washing, you're gonna turn around and start sinning all over again. It would create in you a heart that longs for the day when I am tired of doing this. I'm tired of loading up the kids on the donkey and going to Jerusalem to have to do this all over again. This mess is expensive. I got crops to tend to. You would get tired of this. You would have this longing in your heart. Can that Messiah, can that promised seed that we've been learning about, please just come and save the day. Thankfully, there's another mountain of grace where God draws near to his people. And that mountain was called Calvary. 
If you don't get anything in the sermon, I want you to get this. Jesus abandoned the comforts of heaven to descend to the top of Calvary, to die on a wooden cross, to be that mediator between God and man, the greater Moses who ascends to the cross to pay for once and, all, once and for all the sins of God's people. Get this, please. Jesus is both the God who descends to rescue us and to move towards us, and he's also the mediator that goes up who ascends to Calvary's hill, representing us before God to be the final sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is the same God in Exodus 19 coming down. He's the greater Moses, the mediator, and he is also the perfect sacrifice for all of our sins. It's this mountain of grace at Calvary where we learn that the boundaries that separated a holy God from his people were absolutely removed in Jesus Jesus was the only one who once and for all could cross the barrier that exists between a sinful man and a holy God, and he repaired our relationship. And you see, it's through faith in Christ's work for us that sinners can be forgiven. And through faith by God's Spirit, those who trust in Jesus have direct access to God's throne room, the holiest of holies, where he dwells. We no longer have to exist as outsiders. We no longer need a mediator here on earth to talk to God for us. We come by the power of his spirit right up to the holiest of holies. This is a world-changing, grace-based relationship and identity. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that in Jesus, the wall of hostility that separates us from God has been broken. This means for all of us that in Jesus, by faith alone, you are perfectly forgiven for all of your sins that you will ever commit. And when you sin and when you return and come back to Jesus, here's what he does as your mediator. He lifts your gaze to the cross and he reminds you that you've been purchased from your sin by his blood. It's at that point where you're reminded that you have been given a new life and a new identity that's based on grace. Hannah Peterson was engaged to be married to Stuart, and about a month before their wedding, Hannah was hit by a drunk driver. She broke her hip in three different places, had some broken ribs. She had a terrible concussion, had a little bit of amnesia, uh, had some hearing loss. And her and Stuart, they decided, we're not going to let this accident put off the wedding. She was wheelchair-bound. So as the wedding gets underway, Stuart decides, I'm not pushing my wife 
in a wheelchair. Stuart goes and picks her up and carries her broken body down the aisle and sits her in a chair before the altar. Hannah knew that she wanted to stand for her vows. Oftentimes, preachers are long-winded, so they, she sat, but at her vows, she knew, I wanna stand for this. So she was trying. She couldn't stand. Stuart comes to her, picks her up, and holds her at the altar the entire time when they say her vows. Hannah says this. She says, Stuart never left my side during any of this. He was strong for both of us. Church, this is a picture of what God does for us. We're broken by our sin. We can't pick ourselves up by our best efforts. We can't remedy this relationship at all. But God in his love moves towards us in Jesus. God in his love comes to us. He breathes new life into us by his spirit and he carries us constantly. He never lets us go into this loving relationship with him. During this Advent season, we need to remind ourselves just how blessed we are that God would set his love and send his son to save sinners like us. We need to remind ourselves that the Bible tells us that our new identity in him is treasured possession. You're not your past. You're not your brokenness. You are his treasured possession. We should rejoice in the fact that God would come and give us new life in him today. So the question before us all is what spiritual mountain are you standing at the base at this morning? Are you standing at the base of Mount Sinai? Not able to come near to God with the shadow of Sinai and God's law standing over you, declaring you guilty of sin. Is Sinai looming over you, exposing your need of forgiveness? If that's where you are this morning, you're in the best place possible because it's right now where you can come to Jesus and find forgiveness through faith and faith alone. Or are you standing by faith at the foot of Calvary this morning? If you're there, the shadow of Sinai no longer covers you anymore. The shadow that covers you is the shadow of the risen Savior who conquered sin and death, who rose from the grave, who covers you and says, it is finished. Not only is it finished, but Jesus calls you into relationship with him. He sustains your relationship in the hurt, in the pain, through the good and the bad. 
Christ is with you by his spirit. And your identity is this. Listen to 1 Peter 2. Here's how Peter describes this. He says that through faith, you are Jesus's own possession. Some of y'all need to hear that this morning. Your failure does not describe you any longer. Your accomplishments, nothing in this world describes you except this. You are Jesus's own possession so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing that you would come down to us, that you would leave the royalty and glory of heaven to be born in a wooded manger, to live your life as a blue-collar woodworker, and then to end your life humiliated on a wooden cross for sinners like us. Father, we know that you rose from the grave, that death itself couldn't contain you, and that you sent your spirit out to minister to us and to our hearts. And you're in the process of renewing all things for our good and your glory. Would you allow that good news, would you allow the power of your resurrection, the same spirit that raised you from the dead that dwells with us, would you allow that spirit to transform our hearts this morning? Would it transform not only the joys and sadness that we experience, but would it change the way that we view ourselves and our neighbors? Would your spirit help us to love you and to love our neighbors better, particularly during this Advent season? Father, help us to continue to worship you. Help us continue to love you as you strengthen us by your spirit because we cannot do this on our own. We are beggars telling other beggars where we found bread. We're so thankful for you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.